Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So good evening, everyone. Welcome to uh, Science at the Theater. Our topic this evening, Big Thinking, the Power of Nanoscience. My name is Jeff Miller. I'm head of public affairs at Berkeley Lab. Uh, this show is brought to you by uh, the Friends of Berkeley Lab and co-sponsored, although not listed tonight, by the Berkeley Energy Resources Collaborative. We have a very full program, so I will be brief. Before we begin the program, we're going to start with a uh, telephone voting poll. So if you have your cell phones, rather than tell you to turn them off, I'm going to ask you to turn them on now. Oh, if you didn't bring one, well, you can shout it out, perhaps. Okay, so are you ready? Here we go. Here's the question. So will nanoscience make your life better 10 years from now? You can text to... 22333, and yes will be 85297, no is 85309. No. <laughs> Point taken, and I have no idea, 85406. So let's see what you all think. By the way, I'm very happy to see so many people here interested in nanoscience. We clearly have some lab people here, right? We know there's actually two no's. We have a shout-out no. Well, we'll keep this up for just a second before I introduce uh, our moderator for the evening, who will be the very famous, soon-to-be even more famous. Any more voting? Okay. Uh, the Interim Director of Berkeley Labs Molecular Foundry, our moderator for this evening, Jim DiIorio, please give him a hand. Thanks, Jeff. You know, the fact that we can fill the Berkeley rep on a Monday night to hear about a topic like nanoscience is just a comment on what a fabulous town this is. So as Jeff said, I'm the interim director of the Molecular Foundry. The Molecular Foundry is a research center up at Lawrence Berkeley Lab uh, that is focused exclusively on nanoscience and nanotechnology. And uh, in fact, some of the panelists that you'll hear from tonight are researchers in the Molecular Foundry. But before I get to introducing them, I want to just say a few words about uh, what, what the topic is tonight. So when we use the terms nanoscience and nanotechnology, we're referring to the investigation and application of the unusual properties that emerge when materials become very small. In fact, when materials get to the nanoscale, that is, the length scale of a nanometer. So what, what is a nanometer? So if you, if, uh, the, if you take a, a, one of your, your hairs, a human hair, the thickness is about 80,000 nanometers. When you see images tonight of particles or, or objects uh, and wires that are on the scale of a few nanometers, just remember that's uh, about 1 80,000th the thickness of your hair. Okay, so, um, okay, well, why? Why does that matter? So, um, nanos, the nanoscale is not the size of an atom. And it's not the size of objects in our everyday life, or even the size of objects that you might have looked at through a microscope in high school biology. It's much smaller than that. Um, and at that length scale, 
um, new properties start to emerge in terms of their of optics, um, electricity, magnetism, and even the strength of materials. So think about uh, how materials might behave differently if if their size gets as small as the wavelength of light or the distance that an electron travels before it stops. This has big implications for things like solar energy or information technology, and you'll hear all about that uh, tonight. Now, clearly, one of the advantages to nanoscience is that you can pack a lot of stuff into a small space. Well, when you think about uh, an obvious application is computing, think about how powerful the human brain is, and that's in part because of the density of circuitry that exists uh, in, in the brain. And that takes me to another point about nanoscience. Another aspect of nanoscience that makes it very special is that it's the length scale of biology. We're talking about the size of proteins and viruses. These are the nanomachines that make life possible. So when we can start to match up technology with the length scale of biology, there are great possibilities. <clears throat> Um, I don't know how many of you ever saw the movie Fantastic Voyage. Yeah, well, a lot of people laughing, and that dates us, I know. Those who aren't laughing are thinking, what are you talking about? Well, you know, remarkably, I never imagined when I was a, well, I guess I wasn't even a teenager, when I was a child, that that, that was any, anything other than fantastic, meaning fantasy. But in fact, well, maybe it still is a long ways off, but the concept of making a nanomachine that you can put into the body and that will target a specific, uh, a specific type of cell, a cancer cell, is something that scientists are really working on today to try and bring to the, to bring to the, uh, uh, to, uh, the doctor's office. Um, so these are the reasons why, it's one of the reasons why scientists are so excited about nanoscience and nanotechnology. Um, I have to say that um, a lot of, People are concerned about safety when it comes to nanomaterials. And I want you to know that certainly within our center and within every nanoscience research center that I've ever interacted with, safety is first and foremost. Now, most nanostructured materials are completely harmless, and we deal with them in our everyday lives, even though we don't know about it. But certainly nanoparticles like soot can pose a potential health risk. Um, and so we're very careful in the uh, controls within the facility to make sure that nanomaterials are, are immobilized and not, and, not, uh, and not released. But in addition to that, uh, researchers within the center and within many nanoscience centers work with medical uh, researchers in order to understand the issues of toxicology of, of nanomaterials. Having said that, um, you can see from the youth of the panel here that scientists are are very excited about building the careers around nanomaterials. And it's obviously not because of the potential for problems, but because of the great potential that nanomaterials bring for, um, for improving our, our everyday lives. Uh, and with that, I want to just briefly introduce the, the, the panelists. Um, and then they will come up and tell you about their work. It's uh, Dr. Alex Weber Bargioni, Dr. Babak Sanayi, um, Dr. Ting Zhu, and Dr. Dilia Milliron. And uh, Alex, you first. So thank you very much, um, Jim, for the introduction. And um, I want to begin with my mother, because my mother asked me um, about five or six years ago, what is it that interests you about this nano stuff, this small stuff? And the reason is because 
her mother, hence my grandmother, did actually already a PhD in astrophysics in Italy, which was at that time not so usual. And so I was really drawn always to the big things. And now suddenly I essentially change side and go to the small things. And the, the, the reason is, because, is, is, is for me because, as, as Jim already said, if you go from a really big material that can be also just in a millimeter size, the material, and you go to a really small scale, suddenly its properties change. And that is fascinating because nature uses that all the time, as Babak will later <coughs> tell you about. And so um, if we now understand how these properties change, we are able to essentially now make new materials with new properties to our advantage. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. And so um, to begin with, um, just to give you a little bit of feel of that, this is a big gold crystal show, um, found in the Rocky Mountains, and some of you might be lucky enough to have something like that in your bank account. I, I certainly don't. I just have one of those little teetsy little things, if I'm even lucky. But even the small little nanocrystal, right, if you look at it, it still looks golden. Now, if we go to the nanometer scale, um, then... Um, and you have here a gold nanocrystal. So these are 30 nanometers across. What that means is, to get, give you a little bit of feeling, let's assume you have a gold coin at home. The size, the, the difference between the gold coin or the ratio between the gold coin and this nanocrystal here is like a football field versus the eye of an ant. So much, much, much smaller, okay? And so the point is now we go so small that at a certain point, what you see up here, you see solutions of those nanocrystals, and they look different. They don't look golden anymore. So the optical properties change, like the way these gold nanocrystals interact with light change. And other properties which can change are, for, for example, conductivity of a material. So you have metals which usually are conductive. They suddenly can become insulators or the reactivity, or the strength of a material, the way it absorbs light or interacts with light, all these are really important properties and material properties which change. And so now the question is, and that's a very important question, what drives actually these properties? What's the reason for that? And these are the electrons, or we, use, we often talk about the electronic structure, but just essentially the electrons in your material, they are the glue, they hold your material together, Okay, and so they interact also with the with the with the world around this material, be it with another material, so it interacts with the electrons, or it interacts, for example, with light. But it's always the the electrons, their characteristics, which determines the properties of the material. And so now, if we now go into a big gold crystal, right, and we are an electron, and we jump from lattice to lattice, and we jump and jump and jump my crystal always looks the same, no matter where I am. For the electron, it looks always the same because this crystal is huge on the size of an electron. Now, if we go to a nanomaterial, so a nanocrystal, <coughs> the electron looks around, and at first it looks still the same, right? But then it goes towards the edge of your nanomaterial, and suddenly it is at the surface, at, at, the, or at the edge, at the boundary of your crystal. So it looks around, and suddenly everything looks different. Okay, And so um, this is a concept which we often refer to as our boundary condition, and that's very important because that actually determines how much energy this electron has when it, um, in, in its properties be, um, because it can interact now in a, with a, in a different way with its environment. 
And so at this point, when I explain that, my mom rolls up usually her eyes and is like, what? Electrons in, in crystals and whatever. And so, so, so therefore, I came up with this kind of real-world real analogy. So let's say you go into a city as a person, right? This is New York City. And when my wife brought me the first time to New York City, I was, I was astonished how long you can walk just in lower Manhattan. It's insane, right? So you walk and walk and walk, and you never, ever get to the boundary. But you also you never run into the same people. So now you go into a small town, like a small town where I grew up. That's not my small town. But anyway, so you go into a small town, and then you walk a couple of blocks, and you're immediately at the edge. And then you turn around, and you walk a little bit, and you're at the edge again. Okay? And so you run into the same people, and the feel of the town, the character of the town is determined by the people who live there, obviously. But also it's surrounding, like if it's in the mountains, desert, it's on the sea. And so with nanomaterials, it is a little bit similar. Now, um, that the, the electrons now in, a, in, a, in one of these very small materials run around. And so the environment of this material where it is in, as well as the boundaries determine the energy and the characteristic of the electrons and therewith the properties of the material. And so um, finally, it's cool to be from a small town, right? Like in our field, because we, we are doing nanoscience. And so to give you kind of one of the concrete examples where I'm really interested in and which can affect you quite a bit in the future is a solar cell. So this is a very simple schematic of a solar cell. You have two materials, A and B, and the electrodes. And so then you have um, light coming in, gives energy to an electron, gives it a kick, and produces a positive and negative charge which roams around until it finds the boundary of those two materials where it's energetically favorable to split those two. Okay? And then we can use them as a charge. Now, the, the problem for a lot of those materials is this, this pair of positive and negative charge. They attract each other. They like each other. And so after a while, they recombine. Okay? And so if in that time they roam around in your materials, they don't find this, the edge between those two materials, they will just recombine and the charge is lost. So that decreases the efficiency of a solar cell. And now, one way around where our nano, um, uh, where nanotechnology can make a huge impact is making materials. Here's a, a, an example of like kind of nano solar cell materials where now the two different materials are very very close by to each other, so that in the time this, the two charges, the positive and negative charges, are alive. Um, they find the other material and can be um, dissociated, and so therefore we can increase the efficiency um, of these solar cells. And so now the question is, how do we look, how do we determine these properties? And that is one of the things which I work quite a bit on. So now here is what you see is, a, is our nano thingy of interest, whatever we are interested in, right? And so what you used to is, like Jim already elucidated to, you look at things or through a, um, through a nice microscope. So even if you get the best microscope from Germany with a lot of money, you still don't get around this, what we call, diffraction limit. That just means we cannot squeeze light better to a, than to a specific focus. Yeah? So it, it, it doesn't get smaller than that. So it's still about 100 times bigger than what we actually need to resolve then and to look at the properties of a single material. So one way around that is the concept of an optical antenna. So the optical antenna is essentially like the similar concept like a radio antenna, and it takes the energy of, this, of, the, of the light which comes in, 
and squeezes it into the center in this small little gap. And that was just realized um, recently because we were able to nanofabricate antennas which are small enough for light. Okay, so that was a huge challenge to actually fabricate nanomaterials which are small enough to make actually an antenna for light. And so it was able to do that. And so one of the things we do with that is we place this antenna at the end of a scanning probe tip. A scanning probe tip is a concept which is used a lot in nanotechnology. That's a sharp tip which you bring over your surface and you scan over your surface. And then you measure the interaction between the tip and your surface. Okay? And that is how we can do very high resolving um, with image things with very high resolution. So anyway, so we put this optical antenna at the end of this tip, which is then essentially like a nano light bulb, like a really small light bulb. And then we can look at, for example, one of those nano solar cells here and look how, the, how we create photocurrent in these solar cells, depending on the dimensions, the material composition, the environment, so that we make really efficient um, devices out of that. And so this is a way to characterize them. Another way to do that, because I told you earlier, one of the things which, one of the important parameters which determine actually the properties of the materials are the electrons. And so there's a way to actually look at the electrons um, as well and really characterize them. And so that is a so-called scanning tunneling microscope. So that is, again, a tip which you scan over the substrate. In this case, this tip is so sharp that it just has a single atom at its, at its end. And then you apply a voltage between the sharp tip and your substrate. And the current which flows between them depends on the electrons in your substrate. So now you can learn about the electrons in your substrate. And so what we can do with that, we can, for example, look at this molecule. This is a porphyrin molecule, and it's, that is, forget the name, it's a really cool molecule because in nature, they, if you have here the single atom in the center, the red one, if that is magnesium, that is the workhorse, that the molecule which is responsible for photosynthesis. Uh, for photosynthesis. Whereas if you exchange that now and put, just change this single atom in the center and put iron in it, it's your workhorse, that's what's, what is your molecule responsible in your hemoglobin to transport oxygen around, okay? So just by changing one thing, the properties somehow change, okay? And so what we can do now is what you see here again is underlaying the, this molecule here and a measurement of actually how the, how the electron here runs along the main axis in your small town, Okay, so the molecule is now our small town, and here we see how the molecule runs along the main axis um, in this molecule. And so if we go now to the next, if we give the electron a little bit more energy, similar to when you come in with a little bit of light and give it a kick, then the electron suddenly moves in a circle. So now this is a neat way that we can actually look what the electrons do and their properties and how they change depending on the nanomaterial. And so the last thing, uh, what I want to show you, which I think is always quite neat, is what we can do also with a scanning tunneling microscope is we can manipulate single molecules and atoms. So what you see here is, a, is an atomically flat silver surface, and each of those dots, the dark dots, is a single carbon monoxide molecule, a single molecule. And then I come with a tip and push it around, okay, until I have written 
CFI, which stands for Canadian Foundation for Innovation. That's what I did at UBC, because I hoped that if I write and give them the little film, that I get more funding. And so, <laughs> and so they, they used that, actually, and they didn't give me more funding. So, no. <laughs> uh, that's, that, that, I mean, that's how life goes, right? But the, the, the important message which I want to, to, to bring home here is that, A, the nanomater nanomaterials have the chance when we understand how their properties change and how their electrons be, um, change. Um, well, they're, 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 so there are the, the properties that we can, at the end, go ahead and engineer very specific materials. So one of the things I'm really interested in is to understand how one can use nanomaterials to increase the efficiency of light harvesting materials. Okay? And so these are the, the two main points which I wanted to bring home here. And from that, um, I give over to Babak Sani, um, who will give you an in, um, overview of what happens actually in the bio world and how nature uses nanomaterials very efficiently. Thank you very much. Hi, how's it going? You guys can hear me okay? Yeah. yeah? Uh, thank you very much for coming out here. It's inspiring to see you all and to have this opportunity to tell you, tell you a little bit about why nanoscale stuff inspires me. My name is Bob Aksani. I'm a postdoc at the Molecular Foundry, uh, working with these guys on nanoscale materials. But my training is actually as an optical engineer. And I worked in the field as an optical engineer for five years before returning to graduate school. Uh, and when I did, I was astounded to learn that all that engineering I learned was child's play compared to what nature was already doing underneath my nose and in my nose. So, <laughs> and uh, to illustrate this, I, I kind of just wanted to, to jump right in and talk about the blue morpho mutter butterfly. Have you guys seen this before? A couple of you? It's an excellent example of nanotechnology. Um, this is a butterfly that uses the amazing colors of its wings for signaling, for mating. Um, and, and also, there's another life or death aspect of this, which is if a butterfly flies into your house, are you as likely to kill it as you are a moth? You know, not if your kids are watching, right? <laughs> so it actually has a direct implication, this, this color it has. But the reason it has this color, and this, this is totally fascinating to me, is not because of, the, of a pigment or because of a, some sort of chemical attribute of the material it's made out of, it's because of the structure of the material that it's made out of. If I was going to get a block of just the, the chemicals that these are made out of, it'd be brown and gray. It wouldn't have this blue color at all. It's only when you take that material and you fashion it in exactly the right sort of shape that this guy already has that you get this blue color. So let's look in a little bit. Uh, this is with an optical microscope. We're zooming in. We see that those... Uh, the colors actually come from little petals that are adorning the entire wing. Uh, we keep going in. We start noticing that the, the petals have some sort of structure to them, some sort of lines going up and down. And we've kind of hit the limit at this point of how good an optical microscope, a conventional optical microscope, can do. Um, if we want to go any further, which we, of course, want to do, uh, we switch to, of course, an electron microscope. So these images are black and white. Um, here's an electron microscope image of those little petals on the wing of a butterfly. And now I put a little scale bar here for reference. So keep track of that as we go through. When we're zooming in, we see more and more of these striped structures. Further, further, we start seeing interconnects between the, the striped structures. Ooh. A little closer. Look at that. So these were those stripes going up and down here, and there's these interconnects. And what I really want you to pay attention to 
are these guys right here. Those are actually cones sticking out off the surface with little ribs coming off the side. And it's actually those that give the color to the butterfly's wings. You see, if I, and we've done this computationally, if I take some structure that looks like these guys, and these kind of have a tree-like structure, um, you find that just any, any appropriate material that has this sort of shape will reflect blue light, but let red light through, which is a pretty remarkable feat. And it's even more remarkable when you realize that it does this for a wide range of angles of light coming in. You know, if I was a, a, you know, a lowly optical engineer and I was to design a butterfly's wings and I wanted those colors, I'd, I'd probably put thin films of material such that the light would, you know, constructively or destructively interfere as it passes through and the blue would make it and the other ones wouldn't, but that would only work at one angle. This guy uses the exact same principle, but because of this really unique tree structure that I would have never thought of, it can do it at a wide range of angles. But there's more. I felt like Steve Jobs for a minute there. <laughs> but there's more. It just works. No. Um, <laughs> the, so uh, imagine yourself, you're a butterfly, um, and you're on that scale. One of the most dangerous things to you is a drop of water. A single drop of water is bigger than your head. It lands on your head, you suffocate. You know, it's super sticky. If two of your wings get caught with it, they're stuck together. You can't fly away if someone tries to attack you. So these structures also act like tiny little pockets of air so that when a drop of water lands on the butterfly, it beads up. It doesn't wet the surface like it would with clean glass. Not only that, but they're set up so they're directional. So that as the water beads up and rolls off the butterfly, it rolls away from the center. It doesn't pull on its head. Really wonderful nanotechnology that the butterfly had all along and probably never knew it. Right? Because nature will take advantage of whatever it can to get ahead, whatever it can. And nature can work on the scale of nanomaterials. Now, this is not by any stretch of the imagination the coolest nanomaterial stuff that nature can do. And let me illustrate that by looking at the scale bar over here. So here is that scale bar, 400 nanometers, about the size of those features we were looking at. That's about the color of blue light. That's the wavelength of blue light. 400 nanometers. Nature's coolest nanotechnology are its proteins. And the scale of those proteins, watch carefully, are about that big. You see that? We were already way zoomed in. So if we're going to expand this guy out, here we see a gob, of, a gob of atoms. We're at that scale now, which are about 5 nanometers big. This particular protein is used, you see it in uh, jellyfish. It provides that green fluorescence of the jellyfish. And it's very creatively named the green fluorescent protein. <laughs> but I mean, there's lots and lots of proteins. We're filled with lots of them, do lots and lots of different things. Some of them do the things that, that, uh, that we think of when we think of nanotechnology. You know, uh, opening and closing. Here's a particular protein that opens to let other proteins in and then closes behind it. Um, I just picked this one because I'm an optical engineer. And I think it's really cool that we can have fluorescence designed into biology. So fluorescence is just absorbing one color and emitting another. That's all that's going on here. Now, if we look at this molecule, it looks like a glob, right? It looks like a complete mess. It's not. It's actually really beautiful. It is composed of one long strand. And that strand has different parts of it that have different properties. Those little parts you've probably heard of are called amino acids. 
and has different amino acids in different parts, such that when this long strand is put into water, these amino acids interact, and this thing just naturally folds into this amazing shape, which is a barrel here that protects the bit in the middle that actually does the fluorescing work. Really remarkable stuff. To give you an idea of scale, if we were going to make a nanomachine, you know, out of hard material, silicon, let's say, and we were going to take the best nanotechnologists on the planet and tell them, uh, we want you to make those little nanites you see in Star Trek, right, that are going to work inside your body or whatever. Make the smallest thing you can. And they were going to make a gear that goes inside that smallest thing. The smallest nub that they could put on the smallest gear is about this size. So this would be the smallest feature that we could make from the top down. And yet nanotechnology has all, sorry, biology has all these wonderful features at a much, much smaller scale. And all we can do at this point is just learn from this. And that's, that's what I do. That's what the people in my group work on, in our group work on, uh, with Ron Zuckerman. We, um, we look at structures like this structure right there. You see those ribbons that make that barrel that go around there? We see, what can we learn from that? Now, that, that, those ribbons are actually two anti-parallel strands. Or sorry, one strand that folds over onto itself that's connected in lots and lots of different places. So we're going to take that idea of lots of connections between two strands near each other and see if we can come up with new materials. But there's something else we can learn from, from biology, which is this idea of the one long strand that has information encoded in it bit by bit, you know, amino acid by amino acid. And this sequence determines its ultimate formed, self-assembled shape. So that, that's another idea we, we want to steal from nature and see what we can learn from. Uh, and the way we actually do this, um, this guy here, we think, all right, we're not so clever that we can make one of these guys from scratch. What do we know? We know how positive charges and negative charges interact. What do they do? They, yeah, they attract each other. If they're similar, they would repulse. But if they're dissimilar, they would attract. So if I made two rods where one side of one rod was positive and the other one was negative, like that guy up there, and then it came to another rod that had the exact opposite motif, when these two met, they would stick with lots and lots of little interactions going across. The same way that we see in these, all these little interactions inside one of, these, one of these nano features that nature already uses. Now, how am I going to make rods of this scale? I already showed you the smallest thing I can do. Well, chemistry to the rescue. My mentor and advisor, Ron Zuckerman, developed this wonderful chemistry where we can grow out a type of molecule, a polymer known as a peptoid, one bit at a time, exactly the same way that nature grows proteins, one amino acid at a time. The difference is that we can put any molecules we want just about any molecules we want at each one of those steps. And this chemistry is actually so beautiful that we could put it into a robot really simply, that you can see running over here, and it's to the point that an undergraduate can come in, design a molecule, sit down at a terminal. You know, it's abstract to the point of sitting at a terminal, type in this molecule, put in the reagents, come back a couple days later and, and grab that molecule out. It's really remarkable stuff. It happens pretty fast, too. Um, and using this idea, we developed a molecule that matched that motif we were originally interested in, where one side of it um, is all positively charged, and the other side of it is all negatively charged. And when we take a bunch of these guys and we put them in solution, we mix them in a really interesting way, um, we form 
sheets. Can you guys see these guys? A little bit of origami going over here, folding over. These are sheets really similar to those sheets that biology uses. They have very similar scales in terms of like the spacing from strand to strand. However, compared to those things, these are giant. They're only two molecules thick, so they're super thin, but they are like millimeters wide, right? So on our scale, absolutely giant. The, 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 the aspect ratio on these things is, is over a million to one. Um, and perhaps most interestingly, the design of these is so robust that we can make changes to that molecule going in, and those changes are reflected on the surface of these sheets. So these big sheets, we can make them sticky. You know, we can design any molecule we want on the surface such that it can do things like binding. You know, we can design it to stick to one particular type of protein, and when you expose these sheets to those kind of, that particular protein, it'll stick to it, and they're big enough that you can just sieve it right out, pull it out and see what's stuck. Conceivably, you could go one step further even. You could incorporate some fluorescent marker inside it such that when the binding takes place, its fluorescent properties would change. So it could be binding and detection at once. And finally, and this is stuff we're just starting on. I mean, I should give a little scale here. Um, we've been inspired by nature, but we've, and we've made a new material as a consequence, but we're just learning the basic properties of this new material. And one of the ones that I'm particularly excited about is how can we use these as filters? Because we can put whatever we want on the surface. We can potentially engineer in ports, let certain molecules through, and block other molecules. And these would be the thinnest filters on the planet. But in the end, we were inspired by nature. But look at these compared to the complexity of any protein that's sitting in your body. And these are simplistic. We're just right at the beginning. And we're learning about what's happening next. So thank you very much. Pass it on to Ting. That was very exciting, isn't it? That's a big shoe to fill. So my name is Ting, and I'm a citizen professor from material science and engineering department, as well as department chemistry. And today, I'm going to tell you some work going on in my group. So before I start telling you the exciting stuff we do in the lab, I have to acknowledge all the people here who really made things happen. And actually, they are the people who really inspired me, and they are the people who really get what I show, get things done, you know, and I'm going to show you some of those stuff. And actually, as a system professor, as well as academician, I do have to thank public, as well as uh, taxpayers, who actually provide support to, you know, let us to explore fundamental science, and as well as uh, open up the possibility what can potentially lead to technology development. So, Bobak did a really good, excellent job, and tell us, you know, how important to engineer nanomaterials. And we, as well as many others, are working in the lab, really trying to engage, focus, and get to those materials that potentially can be used, lead to some beneficial, benefit, uh, trying to make the life a little bit better. And just, you know, we can divide ourselves, as well as many others, into two group people working here, just like showing in those cartoons. One is using a top-down approach, namely you have a chunk of materials, and you're trying to get rid of those you don't want, and what is left behind can be viewed here. And this is actually one of the pictures just take out from the Internet. It's a mature technology, pretty much 
any computers you buy at the chip is made that way. So you can show here is individual lines and the feature, the smallest feature reported by Intel early this year is about 22 nanometers. And actually engineering those lines make it as dense as possible as well as, as small possible in LabVIEW, have a smaller computers, have computers that run much faster as well as cost less energy. But as we can see here is that regardless of how hard this little man is working, by the time if wanted to make these features very small, that will become a challenging. This is a, something that reminds me when I was a kid in the beach, right? We, uh, a group of us will sit around and we piled up the sand and we put a stick on top of it. And probably many of you play the same game too. And you're trying to grab as much sand as you can without getting that stick you know, trying to fall over. And you can imagine that by the end of the one, the feature size becomes very small. It's very hard to make sure that stick doesn't fall over. But on the other side, if you can take individual grains of sand, trying to assemble them or trying to guide them into a certain way, you can really make whatever you want it. And the feature size is going to be defined by the dimension of individual grain of sand. And that leads to exactly what it's doing here, that is bottom-up approach. And you can imagine here is that the feature size is going to, really going to depend on what the, the smaller individual building blocks you wanted. And in my lab, we say we are essentially a group of little kids who are trying to build up this Lego and using the Lego to build up a wide range of nanostructures. And we, as well as many others, actually, you know, this is not, this is not very hard to do. You know, you have building blocks, whether should it be nanoparticles, small molecules, or polymers, you can really arrange them into a fairly ordered array over tens of microns, sometimes can even go down to a millimeter. And you know, in individual building blocks, you can arrange in a very specific sequence. Actually, many of them made into the technological sector. But what the challenge actually goes on to is that, can we build up a city in this? And imagine that if you're a mom, have a kid, you, have, you bought this for your kid from the store, you think about it, what am I going to do if one day he decides to dissemble them? How am I going to just clean up my house, right? And if imagine those individual Legos are only a 15 nanometer particles. And if you want to use that to fill up a meter cube space, and I did a very quick mass calculation, it required about 10 to 24th. So think about that many building blocks together. And the challenge is not only just the large quantity of the building blocks you have to deal with, but also you have to make sure that the tree is not grow on top of the roof and the car has to run on the right side of the street. That's clearly is not a very easy thing to do. And that is what exactly we are trying to do. We're interested in using nanoscopic building blocks and trying to assemble them over large areas, not only meters, acres. We want to really take advantage of the collective property of those nanoscopic building blocks and make something useful. How we do it? It turned out that uh, this little man doesn't really need to work that hard. All we have to do is to figure out the, the simple principle. And actually, again, whether you look at from nature or look at the society, it exists every day. And before I tell you what we do, I wanted to remind you something we would do in the physics 101 class. Let's say you have two particles or two spherical objects. And if you look at the interaction between those two objects as a function of distance, 
what you see is that when they are really far away from each other, they completely ignore it. They don't care. But if they get fairly close to each other, they will start to sense each other. Whether they like each other, be attractive, or they don't like each other, be completely repulsive. And what that said is if I put two particles with a close proximity to each other, they might be able to guide themselves into a very, very well-defined assembly. How that is going to allow us to build these microscopic you know, features or you know, materials that we can hold in our hand and you can see it and take advantage of it. And if we look at ourselves, the first thing you see is I suggest you go look at the Google Earth. And what you see is that you have a house, multiple house becomes street, multiple street becomes city, multiple city becomes state, and multiple state becomes country. And by the time we have multiple countries, in the end, we have the whole Earth. And that's exactly how we do it. We want to control the assembly one landscape at a time. And we would like to select a structure framework such that we can put our building blocks together to fit in this particular distance with only, you know, they are fairly close together. And this structure framework can be subsequently ordered, take us to the next landscape, take us to run to meters, take us to run to acres. And the first question is that how big the structure framework we have to deal with. Because individual bees here are tens of nanometers in size, or few nanometers in size, the structure framework has to be in that landscape, has to be close to the dimension of the building blocks I'm talking about to guide the individual nano-building block self-assembly. And I have to introduce a very important family materials, very dear to my heart. This is called dye-block copolymer. Dye means two block, two block covalent linked together, you get a dye block polymer. In this case, you can see you have two polymers. One is polystyrene, that's what you use for your styrene foam, and the other is polymethylmethacolate, it's oftentimes used in your glass framework. And you covalent link those two together, that's where magic occurred. And actually, by doing nothing, you get them start to microfish separate and form this very beautiful morphologies. In this case, is red sphere, red cylinder, red lamellae. And what is amazing is that individual microdomains, they're typically in the range of tens of nanometers, the ideal structure framework. And how you're going to take this from nanoscopic feature size all the way to the microscopic distance actually turn out to be very simple, just like you're making a crepe in the morning or make a pancake. So if you want to make pancake early in the morning, you take the flour, you dissolve it in water. You know, someday you put the egg, sometimes you don't. That really depends on you. But for us, what we do is we put polymers into a solvent, okay? And then you put the, the batter into the bowl, into you know, the pan, and you flatten it out. And in our terminology, we call it spin coat. Then you heat up your stove, you start to bake the material, and you get a pancake. In our term, we call it thermal anneal. And if you do the whole thing together, you get a pancake. But in our case, you get a sheet of film in the area as large as you want it. But if you start to use different scopes, start to zoom in. And if you use atomic force microscope, as Adam talked about in the very beginning, this is AFM image from the top of the film. 
and individually what do you see? Those are hexagonal packed cylinders standing normal to the surface. And the scale bar in this case is 100 nanometers. Individual features is 15 nanometers in diameter. That is a few thousand times thinner than the diameter of my hair. And what are you going to do about it? It's turned out very simple. And you, know, you take out the material in the cylinders. You generate this honeycomb type of thin films. This film is tens of nanometers in thickness. Have a pores, it's only about 15 nanometers in diameter. And that pores go all the way through. You can generate this in areas large you want it. It can do this in tens of minutes very fast. And of course, if you deposit metal in there, you can get nanowires. You can use it by itself for separation, or you can grow things in there, do various reaction. But I want to take you, pay, you know, draw attention to this one. It's turned out to be the simplest thing you can do. You have the porous film on the surface, you just etch it down. Use that as etching mask, and in this case, etch down to silicon, you can see you generate porous silicon. You may say, okay, I generate honeycomb in my silicon, so what? What can I do about it? It turned out that if you bought a computer from IBM after 2009, it is using every chip produced by IBM after 2009. And it made to the 10 breakthrough in 10 years of IBM in 2007. What is it? It turned out to be air gap technology. It's very simple. Is that because when you use the porous material on the top as etching mask to drill those holes into silicon, you essentially generate vacuum gaps that's insulate between the wires so that they're not going to crosstalk, which is a significant challenge if you start to make the wire smaller, getting closer to each other. Okay, so now I'm going to, so that's something made, you know, we did in the lab, made into the industry, use it every day. But can we do better? If you look at the honeycomb I showed you just now, you actually see the green. Some of them oriented this way, some oriented the other way. And we really want to do something better. And this is what I show you is a single crystal silicon. And that silicon is really the material drive the South Bay, drive the Morris Law. And you know, pretty much in this large chunk of materials, it's bigger than this person, I know individually where each atom is at. We want to do exactly the same thing because we truly believe order is, you know, stru the structure order is the foundation for the material properties. And again, as we start to use those templates, how can we generate the, temp the structure scaffold with large order, completely no defects? And it turned out to be very simple. And many of us probably have rock sugar in your house. And if you put a little bit of water in the, in the sugar, what do you, and then you let it dry, and somehow you let it recrystallize, you can see it has very well-defined you know, faucet. And using that, using this facet substrate, which they align in one direction, is showing you here, we're able to direct the assembly of those individual microdomains I showed you before. And this is a film. It, this, again, is an atomic, uh, atomic force microscope uh, image. And you can see that within the field of view, you know, it's a, it, actually the feature size may be too small to see. 
you actually see the honeycomb structure. They are one single grain. There's no defect in the surface. And with this, we truly believe it opened up the door for many applications. Bobak show you this optical properties. You can see the butterflies. And if you pay attention to the image he, he showed you, you can see all the little features, they all align in one direction. And once we get such well-ordered structure, is there any way we can take it one step further to use it to build electronics as well as optical devices? And one of the research areas in my group is trying to take advantage of the unique property of nanoparticles. Many of us heard about nanoparticles are useful building blocks for photovoltaic. And actually, they're also useful building blocks for energy storage, for example, is battery. And of course, there's optical properties. Think about it, if you can use light to store information. And if you can manipulate light in a way to bend light in which way you want it, you know, that is going to be really exciting. You know, using light to store information or transform information, clearly it's going to be a lot of energy, you know, economical in comparison to use electron. But nevertheless, for all these applications, again, the challenge is done. Can we manipulate the nanoparticle at a single particle precision over a microscopic distance? And just to show you very briefly, due to the time, and show you, give you some report of what we are doing. This is a transmission electron microscope pictures. And what it's showing you here is actually the scale bar here is 20 nanometers. Individual particle is a four nanometer in size. And this can be done over microscopic distance. What I want to show you is that, look, individual particles can be lined up. So indeed, we can align them, manipulate them, just like what we can do with nanolegal. And by taking advantage of the structure scaffold that we use it here, by taking advantage of the development of what we can do to manipulate the sample of the scaffold, we really believe we can take this to the next level. <laughs> So the last thing I want to show you is something actually doesn't need any of the ordering I discussed, but rather use it as a structure scaffold to direct assembly of another building blocks. Many of us talk about filters, and this is one of the pictures I stole from the internet, is you know, reverse osmosis membrane for water, for water separation. And you can see the water goes in here, they come out of here. The matrix, the major part of membrane actually is pretty well engineered. And if you look into the profit margin, it's also pretty small. But what is really challenging is top 100 nanometer thick layer and cough separation layer. And that's the layer what you want to do is having a channel that the channel diameter is comparable to what do you get from the salt or the metal line in the system. And the ideal case is going from 0.5 to 0.7 nanometer. That's a five to seven angstrom. And if you can engineer the top layer and put it right on top of the commercial membrane, you might be able to separate the water. And actually, it turned out that you may also be able to separate carbon dioxide in the chemical plant. And there are more interests in looking at as a protective coating biotechnology. Even people are interested in looking at in the battery. But how can you generate a membrane with a pore size that's small? And that is even smaller than we talk about typical in the nanoscopic 
domains we typically discuss. This is sub-nanometer, and that is non-trivial. But it turned out that we can easily just take advantage of the small molecule. Again, there's plenty of room in the bottom. If you start to look into the small molecules, you can control the assembly of the small molecule. And this is happened to be a cyclic peptide, and the, the pore here is only seven angstrom. And if you can manipulate the assembly of the small molecule in a confined geometry such that you get a through channel, then you may be able to fabricate a membrane with a sub-nanometer channel to give you enhanced selectivity. And this is something uh, with my group is active worked on. And again, this is AFM image. You can see the white corresponding to the cylinders, just I talk all along. That's from the diblocal polymer. By putting the small molecule in the interior of the channel, and actually we're able to generate these pores, and the pores is only seven angstrom in diameter, and they span through the entire membrane. And just show you one example that you can actually fabricate this right on top of the commercial membrane. And now showing some other transport I want to see. This is dye molecule, and the top solution is clear, so indicating the pore size in this case is smaller than the diameter of the dye molecule, which is about a nanometer. So those are still active research directions going on in my group, and we are still in the very early stage to explore, but I believe there, the possibility is unlimited. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention, and uh, hopefully this gives you some flavor of what we do. A material's properties can be very different as a function of its size. It's the small town, big city effect. And um, in my work, I like dogs, but I also like nanocrystals. And nanocrystals have been mentioned a few times um, already this evening uh, as a prime example of this effect of size-dependent properties, where uh, I think it's really remarkable to take a step back and just the fact that we consider nanocrystals a class of materials tells you something right there. They are defined by their size as a class of materials. Plastics are defined by what they're made of. They're made of carbon and hydrogen and so on. Metals are defined because they're made up of metallic atoms from that part of the periodic table. Nanocrystals are defined by their size, and that tells you something right away that the properties we're interested in uh, depend entirely on the fact that this regular array of atoms, that's a crystal, um, has dimensions that you can walk back and forth several times uh, and find the boundaries over and over because it's so small. So how small is it? Um, this is a schematic of, again, the atoms in a crystal where looking at our typical size scales, we have somewhere between hundreds and a few thousand atoms. That's what we're talking about in terms of size. This is an example uh, that you saw earlier in Ting's talk of a particular kind of nanocrystal made of semiconductors, just like the silicon in your computers. Um, this semiconductor, if I were to hand you a chunk of it, just like silicon, as, as Ting showed, is black. But when I make it in the size scale of nanometers, uh, its color, obviously, can vary and takes on all these beautiful colors of the rainbow. So that's a very vis visually striking example of how the size uh, dictates the properties. So what's going on here? Um, how can we understand this? That's where the puppies come in. Um, so if you look over here, um, you've got this, this very relaxed puppy that's in a low energy state. He's really chilling out. And he can do that because the couch he's on is much bigger than his size. 
Whereas this puppy down here is, is really looking pretty uncomfortable. This is a puppy in a high energy state. He's really wound up uh, because the puppy is much bigger than the couch. Uh, so in our terminology, this is increasing confinement of the puppy to a smaller couch. Um, over here in the nanocrystal case, it's the electrons are, are the puppy, uh, and they're being confined to smaller and smaller crystal, and the crystal is the couch. Um, and so you can see that effect directly with your eyes, uh, because if you think about light, um, blue light is higher energy than red light. So this is directly reading out the energy of the electrons confined to smaller and smaller crystals. So that's really enough for me as a scientist. That's really cool. But um, what we'd love to do is find ways to make that useful. And so the rest of the slides, I'm going to show you some examples of how these size-dependent properties are emerging to the realm of useful things that can impact your life, my life, all of our lives going forward. And so here's the first one that directly uses this size-dependent uh, light that can be emitted from these semiconductor nanocrystals, or we also call them quantum dots. Um, and these images, both this one and these at the bottom, are pictures of cells taken with an optical microscope. And all the different colors you're seeing are those different sized nanocrystals. And they've been used to label uh, different parts of the cell using the kind of self-assembly approach that Ting described. And so by labeling different parts of the cell, what can we do with that? Um, two things. We can use that to better understand how biology works, which is going to provide us insights for the next generation of uh, understanding uh, what's happening with diseases and so forth. And um, today's medical technology already, we use this kind of imaging um, and other cell labeling things to screen for different diseases and diagnose what's happening. So by using uh, nanocrystals to label um, the cells, first of all, we get all these colors at once. Second of all, what I'm showing here at the bottom is that those colors last long enough. Um, they don't uh, bleach out right away so that we can actually have long enough to look at the cell and diagnose what's happening. That means we can run multiple screens at the same time. So we accelerate uh, diagnostics that are currently being done uh, with other fluorescent molecules or proteins, like, like uh, Babak introduced, uh, by using nanocrystals instead in the labeling process. Um, so that's one example where these things are actually already being used um, in the labs that are doing diagnostics for this kind of purpose, and it's becoming more and more prevalent. Um, Okay, so another example um, involves, again, gold. You remember uh, Alex mentioned gold at the beginning and how its properties, its optical properties in the macro scale uh, differ greatly from what you get when you go to nanoparticles. Obviously, uh, the color is very different. Um, there are other things that change about the properties of gold as you go to small uh, nanoscale sizes, um, and a lot of them have to do with the surface area. And so I've called out here, if you look at a gold bar, it weighs about 14 kilograms. Um, I don't have one. I didn't weigh it. I, I looked this up on the internet. Um, also not in my bank account. <laughs> um, that gold bar has a surface area, so if you measured all the sides of it, a surface area of about 500 square centimeters. If you take that same weight of gold, 14 kilograms, and you break it up into nanoparticles, um, not only do they make these pretty red colors in solution, um, the surface area is now 9 billion square centimeters, which is about a square kilometer of surface area. So that's a drastically different uh, situation. And what it means is the surface of gold, which is completely inconsequential, doesn't do much that's interesting sitting in a vault or in the rings on your fingers, 
Um, it's pretty passive. You don't think of gold as very chemically interesting. Now gold can be a very chemically uh, dynamic material. And in fact, it can work as a catalyst. A catalyst is just a material that uh, accelerates a chemical reaction and makes it possible for that reaction to happen under more mild conditions, lower temperature, lower pressure, less energy required to make a reaction happen. So very good for green chemistry, where we don't want to input a whole lot of energy into the process, but we want to make things go. So, so very good for green chemistry, where we don't want to input a whole lot of energy into the process, but we want to make things go. So here's one good example. Um, carbon monoxide, nasty stuff. Um, we love to use a catalyst to react it with oxygen to make carbon dioxide. Not great, but much better, much less toxic than carbon monoxide. Uh, gold bar isn't going to help this process too much, but gold nanoparticles can be a very effective catalyst because of all this exposed surface area. That's where the reaction happens, is at the surface. So this is a schematic of how um, the very active sites on the corners and edges of these gold nanoparticles help that reaction happen. One more uh, catalysis problem comes up uh, in the energy sector. So I already said carbon dioxide, not great. What we really like is to turn our carbon dioxide into fuel we can use, such as methanol. This molecule going from carbon dioxide, this is methanol. Liquid fuel you can use, run your cars, and so on. Or uh, turn water into oxygen and hydrogen. Again, hydrogen we can use as a fuel. So looking forward to a, a clean energy um, technologies, this would be really great. And so uh, there's a team at Berkeley Lab working on uh, the problem of using these kinds of starting materials and energy from the sun um, to, do, to drive this process catalytically. And it's a process called artificial photosynthesis. Because again, we take inspiration from nature that takes the sun and runs these catal catalytic reactions uh, to make fuel or plant matter. Um, and so recently, uh, again, using nanomaterials, there was a breakthrough uh, at Berkeley Lab using these eight nanometer rods of a material called cobalt oxide. Again, it's all about the surface area because this catalytic reaction happens only at the surface. Okay, so I'll give you one. Ooh, that didn't show up at all. They're so nano you can't see them. All right. Um, <laughs> so I'll give you one more example um, that's near and dear to me about how we're using uh, the large surface area that you find in nanomaterials to uh, discover new technologies uh, for our energy future. And this has to do with uh, windows, so windows and buildings. Uh, windows, besides providing a great view uh, across the bay of San Francisco, uh, also play a major role in the energy efficiency of your building. And that makes a lot of common sense if you think about it two ways. Uh, first of all, we use a lot of energy to heat and cool our buildings. And the window can help in that because, first of all, it can, it can prevent uh, heat leaking out when you're trying to heat your, your uh, building can also allow heat from the sun when your building is too cold. Um, the light from the sun can be used so that you can turn off your lights and not waste so much energy on lighting. So windows play a major role in energy efficiency. Um, and what we're working on are coatings to put on the glass, which again, so nano you can't see them, uh, that can vary the amount of sunlight that comes through your window so that you can have heating from the sun when you want it and not when you don't um, reduce your heating energy use. You can have the light from the sun when you want it, and not when you don't. And the um, material we're using to do this, all of that activity happens, again, just at the surface of the material, within a few nanometers 
of the surface. So if I have a, a flat coating with no nano anything on it on my window, I get about a meter squared of surface area to play with. The coatings that we're making out of nanoparticles uh, have about 80 times that surface area. So we're packing all of this surface into the same physical window area. And that allows us to have this major effect where we can dynamically change the amount of heat from the sun um, in response to what's changing in the environment. Awfully cold day today, maybe it'll be hot tomorrow. I don't want the same effect from my window in those two situations. Um, so I'll stop there um, and hope that we can take uh, lots of questions from all of you. Um, and I have to say, uh, just in finishing, that this is a smattering of how we're trying to use size-dependent properties. Um, and I think that the most exciting things are really yet to come as we discover new properties through these fundamental investigations of biology and of self-assembly. Uh, that will inspire us to think of new applications for how to leverage those for new energy technologies, for efficiency, and for medicine. So uh, I'd now like to invite all of our panelists to uh, come on stage, and uh, we're going to open things up to questions very soon. I believe we're going to have some uh, stools brought out uh, for, for the panelists. Okay, thanks very much. So uh, before I give you an opportunity to ask the panelists some questions, I, there are a few questions that I want to ask them uh, that maybe will address some broader issues about nanoscience and nanotechnology. And uh, Delia certainly started to get into this in her talk, but one of the questions that I have for the panelists is looking forward 10 years in keeping with the question that was asked here, how do you see nanotechnology impacting our everyday lives? And, and I will uh, pass the mic down uh, and let each of you give, give your own answer to that. So... Um that means that I'm coming from a scientist becoming a, to be a predictor, so that's difficult. But, but, but I, 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 will, I will say what I hope, how it will change nanotechnology, specifically in, in, in the field where I, me and Delia are very interested in, um, um, and also think for, for energy, is that we, um, that we get to the point where we um, make energy sources which are very efficient, um, both in how we convert energy, but also that they're really cost-effective. And what one really large impact on a society that can have is that now you can power essentially places um, which right now have a really hard time to get to power, also in development countries. And so suddenly you have now a network of, of, um, of small um, places where energy is produced, where they have enough energy not only for education and clean water and all that, but, but also to produce things, produce what they do in their local community. And that can actually change quite a bit how our economy really globally begins to work. And so that I, and, and I obviously am biased towards that, and I think that, that that would be a really exciting thing, stabilizing things. But that's my unsolicited opinion. So one of, the, one of the big changes I see happening um, that I'm particularly excited about is that this endeavor into nanotechnology has given us all sorts of new tools to see the world that's already around us. And so I, I'm foreseeing another 10 years of really fascinating discoveries about this complex world that we already live in, um, my, completely separate from all the advances I see happening in the new materials that are coming out, just the knowledge itself of how we work is, is fascinating and baffling to us right now. And nanotechnology right now is our, 
I see as the, the best hope of trying to understand what's going on on that scale that biology works at. So I'm really excited about uh, the opportunities to create highly functional materials based on size. Um, the reason for that is if you look at the, ex you know, the world's population and the resource intensity of uh, growing economies around the world, uh, we can't uh, only rely on the most functional inherent materials. Like for catalysis, for example, platinum is a great catalyst, but it's incredibly scarce and uh, therefore expensive and won't be able to meet uh, the energy needs of the world in an effective way. So having size tuning as a new way to accomplish these kinds of important properties that society is built on and doing that with abundant um, uh, resources that can be accessible worldwide is, is quite exciting to me. Um, I discuss one example which is used every day in the industry, which is air gap technology. And I have to confess that in the very early days when I was a graduate student working on it, even when I was working side by side with uh, the scientists from IBM, I had no clue that one day I can point a computer saying that I know what is in that at least one technology in that particular one. Because, uh, you know, by the end of the day, honestly, we are basic scientists, you know, we are really short of, to be honest, we don't really know much what can potentially lead to the next day. But I have to say that what the technology I show you end up, IBM get two products out of it. One is air gap technology, the other actually is their fresh memory, which is came out in 2005, 2007. So with that said, as I, you know, as independent principal investigator, as I guide my group, again, and emphasize the fundamental research because I really feel that is a ground, that's a fertilizer and can potentially, you know, really enable many technologies. And, uh, you know, based on my personal experience, even for the, you know, couple examples I show you here, we actually work very closely with a venture capitalist as well as industry scientists. And, you know, personal, I'm very confident that at least uh, some technology down the road will appear. And, uh, you know, that, with that said, you know, if you want to have a basic research to make impact in your daily life, it really requires a chain and actually simply just counting on the basic scientist is not sufficient. And I think right now, both from the federal funding agency as well as from the basic science sector, there are you know, notions that we have to build up this assemble line, actually, is that you know, basic research science has to be in communication with people, with in people from industry, with people from the you know, investing, from the various sector of it. And I think uh, once we at least from my personal experience, once I get familiar with that process, knowing what is needed in the other side and the two, you know, the sides from both sides of fence start to discuss, I think a lot of new things are going to come up. And, you know, all you know, it's only 20 years. It hasn't been that long. So, so I'm going to push you for a little bit harder on this. So, so uh, how many people here own a cell phone? Right. That's a dumb question, isn't it? How many people owned a cell phone 15 years ago? A few, a few. I bet you all have one in your pocket. How many people use a personal computer? Yeah, right, okay. So, you know, the IT 
revolution was transformative in the way we live our everyday lives. So I'm kind of asking you to, I know you're a scientist and you don't want to predict the future, but, but give me a sense. So, so okay, so, I, so you'd say I can have better solar cells. Well, I already have solar cells, so, okay, they're a little better. You can give me a faster computer. Well, they're, so I'm going to get 5G instead of 4G, right? So, so, so give, me a, you know, give me an idea of, of, of what difference it's going to make. And, and, and Ting, maybe in your case you want to say something about therapeutics, about, about uh, medical treatment. So I'll let any one of you take a stab at answering this. Uh, I, I, can, I can do it. I didn't talk about a one research area which actually goes to 40% of the effort we do, which I truly believe nanoscience is going to have a significant impact in the life science. And I can describe in like a couple minutes, hopefully, uh, very briefly what we are doing. Uh, one of the research area is uh, trying to generate uh, nanoparticles. Again, when you talk nanoparticles, don't be scared. This is based on the peptide and the polymer, soft nanoparticles. And in, in the range of you know, 10 to 20 nanometers in a way for therapeutics. And the, you know, one of the reasons we're interested in this area is that FDA had approved 100 nanometer liposome. It's called Duxil. And just the effect has been very minimal. And as you start to look into the reason why it hasn't been as effective as uh, people, you know, e expected in the early stage, it turned out the biological membrane has been very complicated. In order for the drugs to penetrate different depths to get to the inside of the tissue, uh, the tumor tissue, it has to be somewhere in that size scale. And uh, I can say. Only up to the last couple of years, people realize that. People say, okay, you really need to 20 nanometers. And, uh, you know, put it that way, if you look into the nanotechnology, you know, if the 20 nanometer nanoparticle, you know, people wouldn't know before. You know, people looking at hundreds of nanometers, micron nanometer particles, expecting it to have the same effective. But now the feedback loop is really effective that people using actually the particle you guys are talking about, using those quantum dots to identify what is the critical cutoff, how the particle is going to move around inside of a, you know, tumor tissue. And then that actually give the feedback, tell us what is the design principle, how we should engineer the particle in the end, give this potential therapeutics. So it's still fairly early stage of research, but uh, you know, all the results looks really good. And I have to thank scientists like Didier, you know, in, in that group who working on the quantum dots give us the lead that tell us what to do. Yeah, I'll chime in a little bit on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we've probably many of us have had friends who fought cancer and a lot of them talk about their progress in terms of their fluorescence markers. If you guys, some of you heard that, that term thrown out. Um, fluorescence is, with traditional molecules, is pretty cumbersome to work with. There's uh, this effect called photobleaching, which diminishes their effect over time. The more you look at it, uh, being able to switch to a nanomaterial like a quantum dot that doesn't have these sort of problems will greatly improve the accuracy of these sort of fluorescence markers. More than that, uh, the, the quantum dots uh, or various nanomaterials um, can reveal new things about the types of cancer that we care about. I saw a wonderful talk today from Bruce Cohen's group where they were talking about um, nanomaterials that, uh, that put off a different amount of light depending on the temperature. 
So you could put a bunch of them in your sun. I think you're, you're involved in this project as well, right? Um, and as, as different parts of the cell warm up because there's more activity going on, that part of the cell will light up differently. And it ends up that we suspect that cancer cells should be super active. They should be growing really fast. So we, should, we might have a way of detecting them before they turn into a tumor. And as, so I think that the medical field is pretty ripe for nanotechnology to make an impact into. Anyone else? I mean, you have a good application. We, you said it's, it's all Delia. Delia is the center of attention. Yeah, yeah. Um, she solves all the problems. No, but like, like imagine you can now do artificial photosynthesis, right? So that is perhaps to some still a little bit too close to solar cells, but still something completely new where we, where we, we essentially really mimic nature to convert um, essentially energy from light into chemical energy, be it using um, getting out hydrogen or getting out um, getting, um, converting it in, 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 in f uh, carbon like CO2 into um, forms which we can actually use as fuel. So we, could, we would be able to really convert in a much more cleaner effort um, light energy like nature does all the time into chemical energy which we can drive around, which is not that I want to, I'm not um, making advertisement here that you buy now a Hummer in the hope that you can do that and use a lot of that. That not at all, right? We, we have to reduce that, the, our consumption too, but that could have a huge impact on how we produce energy and how we ship energy around. I think that, is, that will, would be a huge impact of where nanotechnology is used for. Well, certainly the end of, end of the age of oil would be transformative. Yeah. Well, rather than, uh, I have other questions, but I want to give the audience a chance to ask theirs. Go ahead. And we'll switch back and forth. Start here on the right. What about the gray goo? <laughs> the, gray the gray goo. This sounds like a pop culture reference, which as scientists oh, we may not be familiar yeah. with. <laughs> <laughs> it's prey. The fear a few years ago, at least, was that a nanotechnology process could get away and cause everything on the earth to turn into gray goo. Uh -huh. Oh. Like, the, like G.I. Joe sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the scale which we can build things right now is miles and miles away from being able to do anything like that. Um, I, I mean, I, I showed you, we don't, we don't make machines on that scale. We've seen machines you know, proteins that work in that scale, so we know we're surrounded by them. Um, and maybe the gray goo is life. Maybe it's already doing it. Uh, but we don't have the capability of making self-replicating machines on the scale of being able to interact with proteins um, and, you know, destroy life on Earth. Um, as yet, we're not really worried about it self-replicating, though. So, so <laughs> you maybe. Please don't self-replicate. <laughs> You've, you've given a lot of um, awesome examples of useful nanotechnology. Do you have any awesome examples of useless nanotechnology? The kind of things, the kind of things you might see from, us, from someone in a lab who might have too much time on their hands one weekend. Oh. But it's all interesting, right? So it's so hard to... Plus, I, I, if, if, I, if I call now someone's like, that yeah. is not interesting, then next time I write a paper, they're just like, bye-bye, and they're published. There are people who make molecules, for example. Um, uh, my friend Romus has shown me in the shape of people. 
you know? I mean, they don't do anything. They look like people. They got hats, you know? It, it's, really, it's, it's really cute stuff, and, and it's, and yeah, all right, it's not directly useful, but it's interesting, and it's also interesting synthesis that might show up somewhere else. We don't know where our work is going to be used. I have a question about the uh, mechanism behind the blue color on the butterfly's wings. Is that from diffraction or related to me scattering, or is it from something else? Uh, so me scattering is kind of like a super category that, that covers all that sort of phenomena. Um, it is definitely a diffraction. It's, it's, um, the light is effectively bouncing off of the different layers of that tree and uh, constructively and destructively interfering such that only certain wavelengths bounce off and others don't. Um, but more than that, it gets really complicated. The math is pretty ugly, and you have to simulate it, um, which is why I would have never thought of making it myself. And it's pretty cool that the Morpho Butterfly just figured that out. Good question. Uh, Alex showed us an image of a CFI logo of carbon atoms on a smooth silver surface. Mm -hmm. What does smooth mean at this scale? Atomically smooth. It's just really atomically super smooth. Like, really smooth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no single atom bumping out. So how corrugated is it? It's not flat. Well, it's not super flat, but you see, you see if you, if, what was that? Your entire surface there is a couple of dozen silver atoms wide. Uh, the carbon atoms stick indiscriminately anywhere in that lattice? No, 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 no. So, so essentially you have now your, your flat silver lattice, okay, sitting, on, um, sitting perfectly flat. I mean, you have your, the corrugation of the single atoms in there, obviously, but, but for our length scale, it's pretty flat. And then you have the, the carbon monoxide molecule, which is very strongly polarized, and it usually sits in between. But that has not much to do because of any gravitational effect where, it would, where you have here your silver atom and here um, the carbon atom, and it just goes in here, but it is because of the, essentially of the electronic landscape of the potential my CO molecule sits in. It likes to sit more in between. And it depends also on, on the temperature. So what you saw here was done at four Kelvin. So that is really, 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 really cold. So that is just four degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit because <laughs> I don't think like that. Four degrees <laughs> Celsius above complete zero. Yeah, so it's really cold. And so that's then they don't run around because otherwise it's hard to push them because they're much faster than me with my STM tip. That took about 30 hours, by the way, to do that. I understand that in the processing of nuclear waste, it's would be very useful to be able to separate americium and curium uh, atoms out and send them in different directions. This could be used for that as well. Uh, you know, what, again, just go back to what we discussed before. We are basic scientists. We are looking at enabling technology. For now, what we wanted to do is uh, we were interested in generating a versatile platform. So the ideal case that uh, if we know how to generate a molecular defined porous membrane, we should be able to tailor it to the species of interest. So should this be, you know, gas? you know, molecule, metal ion, or going to battery for charge, you know, things like that. Uh, thank you all for coming out to share your research. Uh, I have a question specifically about the solar panel application, trying to make a more efficient way of generating electricity. It seems like you're having a small number of atoms and you're taking advantage of that having a different chemical property. 
But if you have only a small number of atoms and you're drawing that current off, eventually you might run out of electrons and your material becomes depleted. How do you avoid that from happening? thought that one would come to me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've, I've worked on, on nano-enabled uh, photovoltaics, and actually the, the total number of atoms that you'll use is not very different than in a more conventional panel. What's very different is the way they're arranged. So as, as Alex was showing, uh, the two materials which in a conventional solar panel are... Um, a good fraction of a millimeter apart, which sounds small but isn't, so let's say a tenth of a millimeter slab of material. Uh, remember now several orders of magnitude smaller are now nanometers apart, and it's that adjacency of the materials uh, that gives you potentially improved efficiency and certainly greater efficiency from low-cost materials, again, which can be made from abundant materials. So... Um, but the total amount will be the same. It's just that it's convoluted in this sort of nanostructured way. And the other point is to say that in some cases you can use a little bit less, but it's not orders of magnitude less like you'd imagine going from macro to nano. It's maybe a factor of 2 or 10 less material. Um, and then the other thing is that the electrons are actually generated from the sunlight. So um, solar materials have very few intrinsic electrons there. You're making them. Every uh, photon of light that comes in makes a new electron, and those are the electrons we're interested in harvesting. I just wanted to um, say I'm really encouraged by the uh, hearing all the talk about what uh, is labeled biomimicry now, I think. It's a whole new genre. And... Um, the computers that nature makes and the way, like, redwood trees can pump tremendous amounts of water from the ground, hundreds of feet up. And all this is done without uh, generating landfills and, and waste materials. That uh, So I, I wondered if you guys could speak to that, how these things we're going to create are, can be recycled and regenerate new things. Yeah. Actually, that is a really a valid point. And actually, I have to say that I... By training, I'm a polymer scientist. And basically, a couple months after getting to the program, and the professor talked to us about, you know, you have to really keep in mind about this, uh, you, know, how, you know, how to recycle the building blocks you're dealing with. And actually, that's one of the reasons why we select the approach we show you. You know, if you look at uh, how we do self-assembly, we put two particles fairly close to each other, and we count on, we count on the intermolecular interaction rather than forming covalent bonding. So because uh, we are using non-covalent interaction, the building blocks should be able to go in and out assembly. So the assembly and the disassembly process typically are reversible. And that's, again, what is amazing about nature is that if you look at the proteins, you know, they do their job get in and subsequently get chopped up and those building blocks get reused to synthesize new proteins. Yeah, I think also if you if you just think about Dia's argument of the surface, right? So for a lot of the reactions and for a lot of the things which we are really interested in, these are things which happen at the surface. And we are one of the things in nanotechnology which we are interested in is in creating a lot of surface by making the material really small so you have a lot of surface, right? So that means that for a lot of the things which we want to make or build, we need now much, much, much less material than we needed before. Um, 
So, so, so that already also reduces essentially um, the amount of stuff which produce. I, I want to uh, make a comment here. You've raised a, a very important point, uh, and what it alludes to is the fact that living systems make um, materials at essentially room temperature, low, low thermal energies, which means they also they use catalysts to do it, but they also means they make weak bonds. And the consequence is that living systems are self-repairing, right? They're self-healing, and that's one of the miracles. Well, they have to be because they're always falling apart. And one of the things that haven't, hasn't really been addressed yet, although folks who are doing biomimetic nanoscience realize it, is at some point we have to address the self-repair issue if we're going to make things with green chemistry. Okay, that concludes our program for this evening. Thank you all for coming. Thank our Berkeley Lab scientists. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.